If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to the book of John. John chapter 17 is where we're going to be today. John chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 16, looking once again at the high priestly prayer of Jesus. John 17, 6 through 16. While you're getting there, um, I want to start with a, just an illustration. Uh, this, this one of my movies that I really enjoy, a sports movie that I really enjoy, is a movie that a lot of you guys have probably seen. Uh, hopefully a lot of you guys have probably seen. It's a very good movie. It's called Remember the Titans. Uh, raise your hand if you've seen that movie, Remember the Titans. Okay, yes. I saw it probably 20 times just in school, okay? If I had a substitute teacher, they're like, pop in and remember the Titans, okay? That was their go-to staple movie. I really, really like that movie uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I really, really uh, recommend you seeing it. It takes place uh, in the year 1971 during the civil rights era, uh, during a, a lot of racial strife in the state of Virginia. Uh, there's a guy named Coach Boone who's leading a football team that was two separate schools that became one, an all-black school and an all-white school that were separate segregated and became integrated as a part of an integral uh, effort in the state of Virginia. <clears throat> they go off to, to training camp, to spring training, or I guess fall training camp, and it's before the season starts, they hate each other. The black kids, the white kids, they can't stand each other. There's a lot of strife, a lot of division between them. And then in the middle of the night, Coach Boone gets tired of it. He's played by Denzel Washington. He wakes him up in the middle of the night. They go on a run, a sprint run to, and it's a long run, to Gettysburg. When they get to Gettysburg, where the Battle of Gettysburg was fought during the Civil War over the same strife that they're dealing with at the same time, you know, almost a century later or so, Coach Boone takes his players out there to prove a point, to teach them a lesson. And this is the quote that he says to them as they're standing on the same ground where, where unlimited gallons, it seems like, of blood were spilled by kids just like them, their age, over the same thing that they were dealing with. This is what he says. He says, you listen, take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. And it's a really powerful moment in the movie because you realize that it clicks that they're fighting the same war that shed the blood of the innocent long, long time ago. You know, the reason I start with that is because in John chapter 17, this is a prayer before the arrest of Jesus. And Jesus has in his heart, it's very obvious, a similar sentiment to that of what Coach Boone had in his heart talking to his football team. You see, Jesus' point that we're going to see is that if his disciples are not bound as one, unified for the same common goal and common mission, the body of Christ will be destroyed, not by racial strife, but destroyed by the evil one. And he's warning his team, so to speak. You need to bind together, lest you too be destroyed by the evil one. You see, everyone in the Christian faith can't <clears throat> strive for self-interest, but must strive for godly interest. He, we're not our captain, right? We're not the team captain. God is the captain of our lives. And so Jesus gives his disciples an instruction and an encouragement. And it's, it's, it's twofold. The instruction is simply this, God himself has called you as one and God himself will protect you as one from attack. He's called you as one and he will protect you as one. And we see this in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 16. Let's look at it together. It should be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy of God's word. We're going to walk through it together. Let's check it out. John 17, verses 6 through 16. This is what John writes in the prayer of Jesus. Jesus says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, 
and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As I said earlier, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is the last thing that Jesus records, or that John records of Jesus' life in John before he's arrested in chapter 18. In this prayer, Jesus prays for a few different groups of people. First and foremost, he prays for himself, which is kind of strange, right? He prays for himself in the first five verses, specifically that he would be obedient and that he would glorify the Father with what is left left of his life and then into eternity. He then turns from himself and in verse 6 he begins to pray for his disciples, which we will begin with today. And then after this section, he prays for another group of people. Not his immediate disciples, but the disciples of Jesus that will be converted or brought to Christ by his disciples. And that includes you and I. The disciples after what is immediate. Last time we looked at John chapter 17 in verses 1 through 5, which was two weeks ago. We had a revival last week. But two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus' main focus was and is the glory of God. The glory of the Father and the glory of himself, the glory of God. And we applied that by saying, well, hey, if that's God's goal, then shouldn't that be our goal as well? Right? If God's goal, if Jesus' goal is the glory of God, then shouldn't that be my goal in life as well? And so we talked about what it means to glorify God. That is to seek to see, to savor, and to celebrate God in all things. And so this week, we're going to continue in this prayer. And we're going to see that because the disciples are called and guarded by God, they are encouraged to press on, finding joy despite opposition and attack. And it really is perfect considering we just sang the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Though Satan should buffet, it doesn't say buffet, okay? It's not like the food menu thing. Not Satan should buffet, Satan should buffet. It means he should beat at Christians. He should barrage them with assault. Though he should buffet, we may sing, it is well with my soul. And so in the spirit of that, I want to examine those things. If you're taking notes this morning, this is going to be our structure. Two reasons that believers can be uplifted in all circumstances. Two reasons that believers can be uplifted in all circumstances. Number one is that the God of unity has called us to be one unified body. The God of unity has called us to be one unified body. We 
kind of base that that main point called us to be one unified body based on a, a payoff that happens in verse 11 and so we'll get there that's the payoff or the the purpose statement but he says a few things before that jesus begins this section of his prayer with the grounds for which he is making this prayer basically the, the story goes like this that mankind enters the world separated from god okay that's what we called the fall it happened in genesis chapter 3 that you and i listen we don't have to sin to fall short of the glory of god did you know that we don't have to sin we're born into this world separated from god now we could talk about the the infant innocence and the god's mercy but what i'm saying is we inherit the sin nature of adam before we do anything we're separated from god as we come into this world and so because of that we need salvation jesus didn't just come to to do some things on earth and teach some things and do some miracles jesus was on a rescue mission He came to reconcile that which was far off from God. And so Jesus emphasizes right out of the gate here in his prayer that he came to show the disciples God. Look at verses 6 and 7. Talking to his father, Jesus says, I have, look at this word, manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Okay, I want you to look at that phrase again. I've manifested your name. What that means is that Jesus has made tangible the name of God. And not just his name, not just who he is, but who he really is. Okay, when Jesus says, I've manifested your name, what he's saying is, I've displayed who you are. I've displayed your character. I've displayed your, your characteristics, your integrity, your honesty, your generosity, your kindness, your grace, your mercy, your power. Jesus isn't just saying that I'm here because of God. He's saying, I came that you would know God. To display who God is. To display what God desires for his people. Colossians 1.15 talks about Jesus manifesting God. He says, uh, he, Paul says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3 says something similar. It says that Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. He manifested God in flesh. Even in fact, in John already, John chapter 1 verse 18 maybe says it the best. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, that's Jesus, has made him known. Jesus made God known to man. That's what it means that Jesus became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when he says, I've manifested your name, what he's talking about is that I've made known to your people your character and your desires he has made god known to god's children to the ones of true faith and this is their response he says it right here at the end of uh, verse six i believe he says they have kept your word and then later he says and they know they know in truth that i came from you You see, the disciples were far from perfect and we've talked a lot about the faith of the disciples where it's lacking and where it's proven But they weren't perfect, nor did they have perfect faith. But in comparison to the world, which is the comparison that Jesus is making, they believed. Look at verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, here it is, and they received them and have come to know in truth 
that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You see those three things? They received, they know, and they have believed. What have they believed? Quite simply, imperfect faith, right? But they have believed that Jesus was from God and that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what differentiated them from the world. Look at verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, let's pause for a second. Upon first reading, you may read that and think, I don't know, that that sounds a little harsh, all right? Jesus is saying, I'm I'm praying for my people. I'm not praying for the world. Well, it kind of makes me ask a question. Does Jesus only love Christians? Why, why would he not pray for the world? What's, what's the deal with this? Well, the answer is no. Jesus doesn't only love Christians. I mean, the Bible tells us God so loved what? The world, right? Those that are in rebellion against him. He loves all people, no doubt about it. You can look around and see the general revelation of God and see that God loves all humanity. But God has a special, uh, a special type of love for his people. Jesus is strictly praying for his disciples, not because... He doesn't love the world, but because God has a special relationship with the people that belong to him. And we see this in a lot of ways, right? That God has a special love for his people, a special intimacy, a special disclosure of the plans and the feelings of God. I mean, Jesus has a special relationship with his disciples. He has seen their obedience. He's seen their faith. He's seen their dependence. He's seen their joy in him. He's seen their peace in the midst of strife. Yes, God loves the world, but he has a special love for those that belong to him. We just saw the kids march out of here a moment ago. I love your children. They're so wonderful. Uh, your kids are, are great. They make me smile. They make me laugh a lot. Uh, many of them, they act like they're like 40 years old, right? And that, I think that's the most adorable thing in the world. Uh, I love your kids. No doubt about it. But you and I both know that I love my kids way different than I love your kids, right? Why? Because your kids aren't mine. They don't belong to me. And so that's what we see here is that I have a special love for my own. Those that belong to me. Those that are part of my family. They're my children. And so while I love all your children, I love my children in a special and a uniquely intimate way. Jesus is praying for those who the Father has given him because they are special to him. There's a deep connection here, which really puts in perspective the next two verses, this bittersweet feeling that Jesus seems to be feeling as he makes this plea before the Father on their behalf. Now remember, these guys are dear to Jesus. Now think about that as we read verses 10 and 11. He says, all of mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. But here's the thing. Look what he says in verse 11. This is so bittersweet. You can, you can read through it here. He says, and I'm no longer in the world. In other words, I'm leaving, but they are in the world. So they're staying, and I'm coming to you. And listen to this plea. Holy Father, keep them. In other words, guard them. Keep them in your name, which you've given me that they may be one, even as we are one. What Jesus is saying here is that I'm leaving this world that despises me, but they, my children, my people, the ones that I have intimate love with, I'm leaving, but they are remaining in a world that will despise them. Think about that. Several of you have sent your children off to college, and there's a there's a vulnerable feeling about that, isn't there? 
They're out from under your roof. You're sending them out and you're thinking, they're in danger, right? They're in spiritual peril. God, keep them. God, protect them because I'm not with them anymore. You see what I'm saying? That's the prayer that Jesus is praying. They're mine. Mine are yours. I have a special love for them. And yet, I'm leaving them. Father, keep them. He says, keep them in your name. We talked about it a minute ago. Keep them in your name. What does that mean? What Jesus is saying is, keep them loyal to you. Keep them in full adherence to your character. Why? What's the point of that? He says it right here in verse 11. That they may be what? One. That they may be one. That word one, it means to be unified. That they may be one body of believers. For what purpose? He says it right after that. That they may be one. What does it say in verse 11? Look with me. That they may be one even what? What does it say? Say it. As we are one. That they may be one as we are one. Why is it so important? What's the point that God's people be unified? What's the purpose? To be a reflection of God. To be like God. Because God, listen to this. This is a crazy, amazing thing about God. That God, for all of eternity... Eternity past and eternity into the future, God is perfectly in fellowship with himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect unity, perfect fellowship, perfect intimacy. What Jesus is saying is, if these are our people, if they're going to be ours, let them be of the same mind. Let them have intimacy with us. Let them have unity with us. Let them have love with us. I mean, consider how on the same page the Father and the Son had to be, right? Think about the cross. Would have been really easy for Jesus to be on his own page on that one, right? I don't want to be murdered. Father, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know. Dying for these wretches? But that's not what happened, is it? God, Father, and Son were on the same page. Common mind, common purpose, unqualified mutual love, togetherness in mission, togetherness in goal. And so what is God saying for us? What is Jesus praying for? This is what he's praying for for his disciples. He's praying for a common mind. He's praying for a common purpose. He is praying for unqualified mutual love. He's praying for togetherness in mission. I'm going to say those things again. Common mind, common purpose, unqualified mutual love, togetherness in mission. Which begs the question, whose mission? Is it, is it the pastor's mission? Is it each individual church's mission? We come and say, okay, this is what we're going to be about, church, and so we're going to do this thing. No, listen. The common mission of God's people is God's mission. What's our purpose? It's God's purpose. Not a preacher you love, not the deacon body, not the person on the most committees. Our purpose, our common mind, our common mission is God's mission. And that's why Jesus says, keep them in your name. Not keep them in the pastor's name, not keep them in the deacon's names, keep them in God's name. Loyalty to your purposes. I really like the Olympics. I think I've talked about the Olympics in illustrating something before. I really like the Olympics. Uh, one event that I don't really like, but it came to my mind whenever I was thinking about this. I don't really like it because, it's, to be honest, it's kind of boring. And that's rowing. You guys know what I'm talking about? Where there's like 8 or 10 or 12 dudes in a boat, and they're just like going at it. 
You know what I mean? And the boat looks like it's going like 80 miles an hour in this big lake. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's, there's all these guys in the boat together and they're, I mean, it's like a unit. They're a unit. They're moving at one time and there's one guy in the back of the boat that's looking forward and telling them what to do. Right? He's looking forward. He's giving them instructions. He's telling them when to row. He's telling them what, any other instructions. I'm not going to act like I'm an expert, but he's giving them instructions. A row team that's facing backwards, but they're in unison. They're moving at the same time because the captain in the back of the boat is looking forward and he's giving them instructions. He's calling commands. And here's the thing. If just one of those guys rebels and he says, you know what? I can actually row harder than this. I can row faster than this. These guys are slowing me down. What's going to happen? They're going to slow down. You can go harder. doesn't matter. If you're not in unison with the boat, with the people in the boat, and with the captain, you're going to be problematic toward the mission. You see, guys, the illustration is this, that God is the captain. He's the one facing forward, and his people, his disciples, you and I, are looking at him. And we're not saying I know better. We're not saying I can do it faster. I can do it better than this. You're wrong. We're saying your plan, you're the captain, is better than my plan. Submission to a single voice, to think, to desire, and to intend to honor God above all things. It's unification under God's command. If you think that you always know what's best for the church and are not submitting to God's desire for His church, you are simply a wayward rower, causing more problems than good. That's just being honest. That's the reality of it. See, the lifeblood of this church is not your desire. The lifeblood of this church is not being entertained. The lifeblood of this church is not making you happy. It's not pandering to your requests. It's not keeping things like they've always been. The lifeblood of this church is the gospel and reaching people for the gospel's sake. That's it. That is the lifeblood of the church. That is the marching orders of the captain in the back of the boat. The lifeblood of this church is the gospel and reaching people for the gospel's sake. This is a great commission body of believers. And that's why we talk about being a going and sending church. As we're going to work, as we're going to school, we're keeping the main thing the main thing. You're not there to make a paycheck. You're there to glorify God. It means that we have unqualified love for all people because that's God. If God qualified His love... He would have no love for anyone. That's not what we're about. Unqualified love for all people, no matter what they look like, no matter what their background is, no matter how many tattoos they have or piercings they have, or whether they're an alcoholic. Unqualified love for all people. It means that we're singing gospel songs. It means that we're preaching gospel messages. It means that we call sin what God calls sin. By the way, not adding to that and not subtracting from that. It means that we hold one another accountable. It means that we rejoice with those who rejoice and that we grieve with those who grieve. It means that we honor God with our speech and with our conduct. Why? Because, as Jesus said, we are one. And we're looking in the same direction, submitting under the same pastor. And it's not me, it's Christ. This unity 
is not just being organized and being friendly with one another. The thing is, we can't do this unity alone, which is why Jesus prays for it for us. Think about that. We're not supposed to do that alone. Jesus is praying for it because he knows that that's going to be a difficult thing. It's a supernatural, God-empowered love, a God-empowered hope and peace with one another centered around the work of Christ. And so it brings me to our second main point this morning. Two reasons believers can be uplifted in all circumstances. Two is that we are guarded from the enemy by the victor. We are guarded from the enemy by the victor. We're going to see in this passage that joy in God is the purpose of living. And certainly for discouraged disciples. Now remember the farewell discourse just happened, right? Disciples are discouraged. Jesus is leaving them. Their master for three years, he is leaving. He's dipping out. And so for discouraged disciples, this was a vital prayer for them. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them. So I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas Iscariot, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas's betrayal did not catch God off guard, in other words. But it was part of his sovereign plan. What Jesus is saying is that I have been keeping them and guarding them in one mind, in one mission, in one love, etc. And now, Father, continue the work in them for this purpose. Look at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What's the purpose? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. As the purpose of God keeping and guarding his people is not so that they will be do-gooders for goodness sake, but that they would find joyous fulfillment in life. In other words, Jesus is not praying that the disciples will go and check all their boxes and do all their good things. He is praying that his disciples will find lasting joy in God and so live obediently as opposed to finding joy in the world and marching into its brief joy and lasting pain. You see, joy would be their most valuable asset because it would be something under attack very soon. Look at verses 14 to 16. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. We'll stop right there. See, Satan would be defeated at the cross of Christ. He would be defeated by an empty tomb. But he is not yet powerless. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Is Satan rendered powerless? Yes and no. He is defeated. He is trumped. And yet, he remains powerful in this world. And you see, Satan can and he does inflict terrible damage on God's people's lives, which is the grounds for Jesus' plea in this passage. Keep them, guard them, protect them. You see, Jesus prays that his disciples will be guarded from Satan, who would seek to destroy their lives and destroy their ministries. So how do we apply this? 
Now, although this prayer is first and foremost for the ministries of the disciples, it's also a prayer for every disciple that follows them. That's for us. You see, Satan himself wants to wreck your life. It is a dangerous thing if we do not think about the onslaught of the evil one every day. Think about that. Have you ever just thought to yourself, do I think about the onslaught of the enemy every day? What if we had soldiers, military, that were overseas fighting a war, and they weren't thinking constantly about the ever-present attacks of the enemy? They would be really bad at defending themselves, wouldn't they? They would be very vulnerable to attack. The reality is that Satan wants to wreck your ministries. You may be thinking, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Sunday school. What do you mean my ministries? These are your ministries. You have them. Your first and foremost ministry is your relationship with the Lord. Your second ministry is your relationship with your spouse and then your family. You have ministries. In fact, you have ministries at your workplace. You have ministries at your school. You have a ministry to the people around you that you live. You have a ministry. You have a ministry to your friends. You have a ministry to the other parents on the ball team. So the the fact of the matter is that Satan wants to attack you. He wants to destroy your life and destroy those <clears throat> ministries. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your parenthood. He wants to destroy your relationships with your friends and with your neighbors. He wants to destroy your witness at work. He wants to destroy your witness at school. Excuse me. He wants to destroy your fellowship with God. That's his goal. That's his mission. He wants to wreck them. And he will use your sinful tendencies to do so. What does he use? Now listen. Satan is absolutely capable of doing some heavy-loaded things, but oftentimes he doesn't have to. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that he will use your sinful tendencies to attack you. He doesn't have to send some legion of of, of demons. He doesn't have to do that. You know what he has to do? He has to just tinker with your pride in your marriage. He has to tinker with your dishonesty in your sales position at work. Just tinker with your dishonesty in school, your desire to get ahead. He just has to do a little tweak on your laziness to make your church attendance suffer. Doesn't have to do a lot. Just a little nudge in your flesh's direction. He just has to poke at your lack of self-control when it comes to gossip, when it comes to pornography. Just has to push you in the wrong direction he just likes to just barely nudge you when it comes to your tiredness or your stress even in these moments distracting you from worship he doesn't have to send a legion of demons to do that he just has to play on what you've already given him satan is certainly capable of vicious onslaughts of attacks But he normally needs only to whisper to you your selfish desires, just like he did in the garden. Did God really say? His job, unfortunately, is something that we make very easy. But here's the good news, folks. The good news is this prayer. You are guarded. You are kept. You know what kept means? It means that you are held. He can't get you, in other words. You're kept. It's the same language that was used in John chapter 10 talking about the good shepherd. No one can snatch his sheep from him. You're kept. 
You're guarded from the evil one. Why is that important? Because God is constantly, yes, though Satan should buffet, we have blessed assurance in knowing that Christ has regarded your helpless estate and has shed his own blood for your soul. That's the good news of the gospel, right? And what does that mean for us? It means that we need to have an awareness that the enemy is attacking, an awareness of the enemy's attack each and every day. That means that you need to know yourself. You need to know your struggles, know your need for Christ's guarding. Know your need. It means that you need to take up your sword in battle. What's the sword? What's the sword? Sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6. What is it? That's right. It's the Word of God. How can we expect to be defended from the evil one if we're not taking up the weapon that God has given us to defend ourselves? He is guarding us. He's provided for us. It means that we need to know the Word of God as our weapon, and it means that we need to be near Christ to distance us from evil. Guys, nearness to Christ is distance from evil, and if we are not constantly going to Him, we're making it so easy for the enemy. I want to leave you with this. To get underneath this passage... This is a very emotional moment for Jesus. It's like I said a moment ago. I'm leaving, he's saying. Father, these are my sheep. These are my people. They're yours, they're mine. Keep them. Guard them. And guys, don't you know that if it's Jesus' desire that it shall be done? It is done. He is keeping you. He is guarding you. But this is what I want you to remember. Stop putting your things away and listen for just a second. Listen. This is what I want you to know. Rest in the victory of Jesus you are going to fail you are going to lose to the enemy but the victory is already won the victory isn't based on your behavior it's not based on your morality isn't that great news the good news of the gospel is that you were the loser you were going down as I say to hell in a handbasket That is the reality that we come into this world with. We were spending eternity apart from God. But Jesus intervened. He gave his life for you. Because he loves you. Because he has a special relationship with his his people and with his children. And church, can we respond to that? By looking to the captain at the back of the rowboat. By looking to him and saying, crucify my own selfish desires. Let me do whatever it takes to be a gospel Christian that wants to live for the gospel's sake, to reach people for the sake of Christ. And God, thank you that though I sin and though I fail, I rest in you because you are the victor. That's good news. Let's leave with that. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we pray that we would leave encouraged this morning. So often we fail. We fall to the enemy. And though he is powerful, and though he uses our own weakness against us, and we will fail, Lord, we're reminded by the blood of Jesus that you have made us new, given us new birth in the name of your son, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Help us to respond in light of that. 
Or while I was listening, that those several things, things that Satan just tinkers with. He just pokes at and pushes us and whispers things to us. And we simply give ourselves to them. Lord, help us to make war on those tendencies. To fight them. Lord, if there's someone in this place this morning that isn't part of the victory because they've never come to a point in their lives where they've confessed that they need a Savior, believed on the work of that Savior, and truly given their lives to you, I pray, Lord, that you would make them new this morning. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.